You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Today, of course, is the fourth Sunday of Advent. That's why you see the fourth, uh, the four candles burning up here. And as we look into God's Word today, I want to read just a couple of verses from the passage that we read last week. From John uh, chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to John chapter 1. And before we look into the Word of God, let's look to the God of the Word in prayer. Father, this is such a special time of year that no words that I could speak could even come close to even approximating the greatness of what you did in coming and in sending your Son and what you did, Lord Jesus, in becoming a human being to live and to die and to rise again for us. But Lord, as we look into your Word today, I pray that your Spirit would prompt us and teach us and show us things, maybe a few things that we didn't know before, some things that would give us a new and deeper understanding of of your word and what you've done for us. But more than just increasing our knowledge, Lord, I ask that you would work in our hearts so that our response would be one that would glorify you. And that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, beginning in Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jump down to verse 14 now. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Nowhere else in the Bible is the essence of what happened at Christmas so succinctly expressed as here in these words in John 1.14. The Word became flesh. We observed last week from John 1.1 that the Word, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He existed from eternity past, and He became the Son, a human embryo who was later born of a virgin and laid in a manger. This is the God-man who died for us, who rose again for us, who's coming again for us. The Word became flesh. The technical name for what this process involves is incarnation. You can just add the simple word into the Latin root carnis, which means flesh, or you Spanish speakers know carne is flesh or meat, right? But in flesh, in flesh, God came in the flesh. You could say that incarnation is the enfleshment of God. God has become flesh. The, the idea that God would, would stoop to become one of us 
is very dear to us as Christians. Not so, though, to those who are followers of other monotheistic religions. Uh, for Muslims, it's considered a great blasphemy that God would, would actually have a son or that God would, would, would become human. To the Jews, uh, the idea of incarnation is, is repulsive. They said, well, that would strip God of his transcendence and his glory. Almost a thousand years ago, Anselm, the Bishop of Canterbury, uh, wrote a little book to answer that objection of the, of the Jews. It was written, as all scholarly works were in that time in Latin, Cura um, Deus Homo, and that means uh, why God became a man. And, and in it, Anselm argued that by becoming a human being who died on a cross, God defeated Satan, satisfied divine justice, and procured redemption for his people. I think his work was pretty much on target, but of course it was not exhaustive. No doubt there are many reasons for the incarnation. When I accomplish two tasks at once, I think I'm being very clever and efficient. Um, but when our infinite God does something, He accomplishes multiple tasks. Uh, probably an infinite number of tasks with each one of His, of his acts. Each act of God is multifaceted and, and fulfills multiple purposes. And so it is with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. So what I want to do this morning this last Sunday before Christmas, is to consider three statements that Jesus Himself made about why He came, His purpose in coming, His mission in coming. And the first of these is that Christ came to fulfill the Scriptures. Matthew 5, 17 says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ doesn't do away with the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament. All the Scriptures point to Him. The Law and the Prophets was a common way in Jesus' time of referring to the entirety of the Scriptures that were available at that time, what we now call the Old Testament. All the Scriptures point to Him, and that's why Martin Luther, the great reformer, was fond of saying that the Scriptures are the manger where we find the Christ child laid. He said, until, until you see how any individual passage of Scripture points to Christ, you haven't truly understood it. Christ fulfilled the Scriptures in a number of different ways. By His coming, Jesus fulfilled what the prophets had written. That's why the New Testament opens with the words, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. It's a fulfillment of these family prophecies to Abraham and a thousand years later to David. Some of the more familiar prophecies related to his birth we've already spoken of or alluded to at least during this Advent season. For example, Isaiah 9-6 tells us that the Messiah will be born to us. For unto us a child is born. Unto us 
a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In another place that James opened to us a couple of weeks ago, we learned that this Messiah was to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 says, the, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and will call His name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Hebrew for with us God. God with us. And then Micah tells us, a contemporary of Isaiah, writing in the 7th century before Christ, that, that this child, this Savior, this Messiah, would be born in the rather obscure village of Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the tribes of Judah, from you shall come forth to me. Him whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. That's Micah 5.2. Christ fulfilled the law as well. He fulfilled the moral law by His perfect obedience. He never sinned. He never sinned. He never lied. He never deceived. He never had an impure thought. He always loved He perfectly fulfilled the moral law. Christ fulfilled the ceremonial law by becoming the reality that the ritual symbolized. For example, consider the five great feasts commanded by Moses. We read in Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians 5-7, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed. So by His death, Christ fulfilled the Passover. Christ also fulfilled the Feast of First Fruits. Again in Corinthians, this time 1 Corinthians 15.20. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have, been, who have fallen asleep. Interesting that the Feast of First Fruits was just a few days after Passover. Just as Christ was raised on the third day. We also uh, see... In the sending of His Holy Spirit, Christ fulfilled a third great feast of the Old Testament that was known as the Feast of Weeks, um, or commonly called Pentecost. The day of the Holy Spirit was, the coming of the Holy Spirit was on the day of Pentecost. And so, He fulfilled that feast as well. By coming again with the trumpet of God, He will fulfill the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. But what is of particular interest to us here around Christmas time is how he fulfilled the Feast of Tabernacles. Modern translations sometimes say the Feast of Booths. But the Feast of, of Tabernacles is fulfilled through his incarnation. Our text in John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word for dwell, there is not any ordinary word for dwell. It literally means he tabernacled among us. A tabernacle was just a tent, right? A temporary structure. He, he, he took up this temporary residence 
among us. The Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles that, that the Jews were ordered to, uh, to celebrate was for the purpose of commemorating their life in the wilderness. You may remember that after God led Israel out of Egypt during the great exodus and the parting of the Red Sea, He led them to Mount Sinai, but because of their sin and rebellion and not believing God, He caused them to wander for 40 years in the wilderness before He let them enter the Promised Land under Joshua. During those 40 years... God provided for them in many different ways. He, he led them all the way by, by a bright cloud during the daytime that looked like a pillar of fire at night. He gave them water from the rock. I visited those wilderness areas. And I'll tell you what, uh, the Sonoran Desert has nothing on, on them when it comes to dryness. How are you going to get water for all those people in a, in a place like that? This is God providing. At one time, he even, he even brought water out of a rock. This is the way that, that God provided for His people during the time in the wilderness. So He said, during this Feast of Tabernacles, everybody has to camp out. My wife would love that, camping out for a week. Not really, not really. Her idea of roughing it is having the ice machine at the other end of the hall. But for one week, everybody had to camp out. I mean, if you lived in a city, you had a flat roof. You just built a little structure on the outside of your home, and that's where you lived for a week. But by the time of Jesus, this this. Feast of Tabernacles had expanded and the symbol, the rich symbolism was there. So what they would do in Jerusalem was, was there would be big jars of water in the temple court, specifically the court of women. There were three courts. This was the middle court. There, was, there were these big water jars and they were to remind the people of how God brought water from the rock. And then every night, the whole place would be illuminated by these giant lampstands to remind people of how God led them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night. It's interesting that in John chapter 7, Jesus has one of his visits to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles recorded. And this is what he says. At that feast, probably alluding to those rocks, the water from the rock and the, the water jars there. He said, if, if, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John explains he was talking about the Holy Spirit there. Jesus, you see, He is the one who brought the water from the rock. He's the one that this Feast of Tabernacles was pointing to. He also alluded to, to those lampstands there on the, at that same feast where He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus beautifully fulfills all of these 
Old Testament Scriptures. And there are many other ways in which He does that. But fulfilling Scripture was not the only reason for His coming. Christ also came to seek and to save that which was lost. Getting this from Luke 19, verse 10, where we read really those exact words. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. We were lost in our sin. And He came to seek us and to find us. The Bible compares our condition to that of wandering sheep who have just lost their way. Isaiah, for example, says in Isaiah 53, 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Jesus then comes as the good shepherd who will leave the 99 sheep in the sheepfold safely enclosed and go out and search and seek until he finds that one lost sheep and will bring that sheep back. And at some point in time, he did that for me. And for each of you who, who is a believer, he did that for you. And for any of you who are not yet believers, he'll do that for you in his time. came to seek and to save. If He hadn't become one of us, we never would have recognized Him. Uh, I read once of a Hindu who, who uh, could not believe in Christianity because he could not contemplate a God who would so humble Himself. Even though Hindus have many, many gods, he couldn't he couldn't even imagine a God that would be so humble as to become a human being. Then one day, this Hindu man came upon an anthill. And he tried to study the movement of the ants around this anthill. But he found that every time he bent low to get close to it, his shadow would cause the... the uh, the ants to panic and to scatter in many different directions. And it was at that moment that he realized that the only way he could truly understand the ants was to become an ant himself. And he wrote that it was at that moment that his conversion to Christianity began. Christ came to the anthill of this earth to seek us. But, but He didn't just come to seek us. He came to save us. And to consider how He fulfilled that mission, let's go to a third and, and final statement of, of Jesus that we'd like to look at this morning. This one's from Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like that Hindu man, doesn't that overcome you? That the master becomes the servant? What, what humility. What Sacrificial love that God would become a human being 
One of my professors, Steve Childers, wrote, When you think deeply about how the transcendent Creator has willingly taken on Himself the very likeness of the creature, it's mind-boggling. The eternal Son of God, the Creator of all that is, now feels the binding confines and restrictions of human flesh. Now all of a sudden, He has skin around Him. Now He has to use doors. Now He has to ride animals. Now He has to eat and sleep. Now He feels all the human temptations like fear and worry and anger and frustration and lust and greed. But as the writer to the Hebrew tells us, all without sin. Instead of being surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angelic beings constantly praising and adoring Him, He has now looked down on. He's looked upon with disdain. You can almost hear someone saying in the marketplace, Get out of my way, boy! Who do you think you are? I just marvel at how the Creator and Ruler of the universe willingly submitted Himself saying things like, Yes, Mother, or Yes, Father. How He did not appear as a glorious king, but as a common man, a carpenter and a Jew from Palestine. And then, how He accepted hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. As if the very fact of the Incarnation we're not enough of a study in humility. Jesus shows how He is a servant in the Incarnation. You remember the story, don't you? The night before Jesus died. They're having this Passover. They're celebrating this Passover meal. But there's a problem. You can't come to a Passover meal with dirty feet. I mean, they had these low tables and your, your feet weren't under the table. They were kind of out behind you in a very, very poor, bad hygiene. But you needed a servant to wash the feet. And there wasn't a servant there. And all the disciples were looking around at one another. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of them were thinking, uh, maybe that James the Less should do it. Uh, <laughs> And then as, as they're all waiting to their embarrassment, the Lord Himself gets up. And He takes off His outer garment and wraps a towel around Himself. And He pours water in a basin. And He goes one by one to His disciples washing their feet. When He gets to Peter... Uh, Peter was never at a loss for words. When he got to Peter, Peter said the two words that you should never say together. No, Lord. No. Uh, you will never wash my feet. And, and Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, 
you have no part of me. Then Peter does a complete 180 and says, well, then don't stop with my feet. If that's going to make me a part of you, give me a bath, Lord. Just, just wash all of me, my head and my hands. And Jesus said, no, the one who's been washed, the one who's had a bath only needs his feet washed. There's a lesson there for us, isn't it? You know, when you come to Christ... When you come to Christ, you're washed of all your sins. It's not by works of righteousness, the Bible says, which we have done. But according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. But what happens in this Christian life is that we, we, we walk, we walk, we walk in a dirty world, in a polluted world. And our feet get dirty and we need to continually be coming to the Lord for the cleansing of our sins during our Christian walk. Brothers and sisters, your feet really stink. And so do mine. And we need to recognize. We need to recognize that in one another. And we need to recognize that we all need to come to the Lord for cleansing. What humility in becoming a servant, even as shown by washing the disciples' feet. But of course, the ultimate act of humility was His death on a cross. Think about this. The only person whoever lived who did not deserve to die was executed. What does the Bible say that the wages of sin is? Death. Jesus didn't sin. He didn't deserve to die. But He died as a servant. He died the death that you and I deserved to die. You see, that's what Jesus meant by if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you, you have to be a servant. When you were kids, did you ever play that game where you build a human pyramid? You know, you, you're, on, you're all on your hands and knees and then other people climb up and other people uh, uh, cl climb up. Those of you who were kind of big always had the rotten end of the deal, you know. But, but that's kind of a picture of, of what human success is like, isn't it? You achieve by climbing over the backs of other people. Jesus comes along and turns all this on, his head, on its head. And he says, it's not a pyramid. It's an inverted pyramid. I'm going to carry you on my back. And God's great people do the same thing. Jesus came and died. You know the story so well. How He'd done all these wonderful miracles, given all these beautiful teachings. No one ever spoke the way that He did. He taught with authority. 
And yet, because of the envy of the political leaders and religious leaders, he was delivered over to be crucified. Shameful, horrid death. That's, I wouldn't even want to try to describe graphically in a group like this. It is, it was so horrible. And this shameful death, Jesus said, was for this reason. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die to pay for your sin. To pay for my sin. Any of you who believe and receive that payment, you're included in the many that He gave His life for. He gave His life as a ransom for many. This is what the incarnation ultimately was about. That's what Anselm was talking about when he said he died for redemption, that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Pastor Leith Anderson wrote this. Several years ago, I was visiting Manila and was taken of all places to the Manila garbage dump. And I saw something beyond belief. Tens of thousands of people make their homes on the dump site. They've constructed shacks out of things that other people have thrown away. Uh, they send their children out every morning to scavenge for food out of other people's garbage so that they can have family meals. People have been born there and have grown up there. And in fact, there are some who have who've never left the garbage dump their whole lives. Uh, they've had their families and children, their shacks, their garbage to eat and finished out their lives and died there without ever going anywhere else, even into the city of Manila. It's an astonishing thing. But Anderson goes on to say, but Americans also live on the garbage dump. They're missionaries. Christians who have chosen to leave their own country and communicate the love of Jesus Christ to people who otherwise would never hear it. That is amazing to me. People who would leave what we have to go live on a garbage dump. It's amazing. But not as amazing as the journey from heaven to earth. How can we respond to this coming of Christ this Christmas? Let me give you a few suggestions. In the first place, if you have not yet received the gift that Jesus gave His own blood to purchase, don't wait any longer. This is the time. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life. And He offers eternal life as a free gift to everyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation and stop trusting in their own good works 
and whatever else that they think that they can do for God. Receive simply the gift that God has bought for them in giving His Son. For those of us who have received that gift, I think we, we, we need to respond with, with a renewed wonder. <laughs> I, I think we need to be awestruck again. You know, John said, uh, we beheld His glory, we have seen His glory. And I, I want you to see not only Christ's humility, but also how glorious it is that the God of glory did this for you. I, I want you to respond in, in, in wonder and worship. Worship Him. Give Him thanks for what He's done. But finally, I'd like to give you one last way to respond. And this is a very, very practical way. Right? When you think of how Jesus died for you, and rose for you. We're told that he died and rose for us. That, that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. But for him who died and rose again for us. Specifically he tells us that even though the gospel has given us this wonderful freedom. We're not to use this freedom as an occasion to indulge our sinful nature. Rather he says by love serve one another. So I want to ask you this Christmas to adopt a Christ-like attitude. I know you can't do it in and of yourselves. I'm not expecting that you can. But you have the Holy Spirit within you, believer. And you could trust in His power to adopt the Christ-like attitude. That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 2, let this attitude be in you. Which was, also being Je- which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He showed his love for you in a sacrificial way. And I'm asking you to consciously choose and act every day this week where you can show sacrificial love to another. He reached out to us in our brokenness in part so that we could reach out to others in their brokenness.